Hey, it's Shawnee B. I'm your host for the Mean Mind Podcast. Welcome back to the Prospecting Series. Today's guest is Tanner Hall. He is a full-throttle athlete, social savant, and the only person I've seen drive six children around in the bucket of a front loader while their parents happily watched. Needless to say, he's not the kind of person you meet every day. So let's get to it with Tanner. Welcome to the show, Tanner. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. So how have you gained the trust of so many parents to let you wave their kids around in the bucket of a front loader? I think I have the trust of the kids, or at least their excitement. And I think some parents maybe pick up on that. Some of them have just known me forever, and that's probably the reason some of their kids don't go in the front loader, because they have known me forever. But those ones that do, I don't know. Trust just comes, I think, with how you hold yourself and the confidence in which you can exude around others. You seem to be good at writing that line of pushing things pushing things so that you're progressing and you're pushing limits, but you're also under control mm-hmm. and not going too far. Under control is a, that's a scary thing to be, but I think it's needed sometimes. <laughs> that lack of control can be fun. But when you have kids in the bucket, you do got to stay under control. Would you rather... You're saying it's it's a dangerous place to be. Being under control is dangerous, and you'd rather be out of control? Well, I think out of control can be needed. I think everyone has to get outside the lines a little bit. So mm. like, like, it, like you're, It's more dangerous not to try getting out of control sometimes than it is to always be in control kind of thing. What I give is I give those parents the ability to feel like they're out of control and the confidence to know that it's all going to be okay. So it's a beautiful feeling because it's just on their edge and they're not quite sure, but they see the elation in their kids, how excited they are. And you get comfortable with being slightly out of control. And I think that that's a beautiful thing to push. Mm. How, how did you meet a lot of people in this town? Like you've lived here for a while, right? I was born and raised in the gorge. So that helps quite a bit. And then my industry, real estate, I just meet a lot of people through that. Mm. It's kind of the and all be all of how we make money in a sense socialization it's something i enjoy doing Mm. so this is uh kind of goes back to what we started off with but do you have an idea of like positive masculinity Mm. i have yeah i guess i mean I, i don't know what it would be in a clinical term or educational term but i do think that there's a lot of positivity to masculinity Right. I guess I'm just curious what your idea of that is, because like these days, masculinity is kind of being eroded mm-hmm. in society. And I was just curious if like, what do you, because obviously you're a man, so you're masculine. Mm-hmm. But how do you like, do you have a way like, how do you like you're and you're a fairly masculine guy, like you're physically big. You're also socially big. Like, how do you think about being like positively masculine as opposed to being like overbearing or um or something that some type of masculinity that would be too far Hmm. or is it not even a (laughs) well masculinity is a term and it's a it's a fact like you stated stated you know i am male if you want to if you want to say i am male so i am masculine 
Um, that is what it is if you want to go with that kind of thought. And if I am masculine, then whatever it is to me is is okay. But how it affects others is what they have to work with and what they need to deal with. And so positive masculinity is in the eye of the beholder. I can't necessarily say that I think I'm positively or negatively masculine to the crowd or to an individual because I don't know where their traumas or offenses are. You know, a positive masculinity could be me coming up to somebody because they stubbed their toe hurriedly and trying to pick them up. And maybe it's a young boy that really feels super comfortable and, and needs that. Or maybe it's some other young boy that feels like I'm going to go hit him and that would be a negative thing. And so it's it's hard for me to equate what's positive or negative depending on the person. Yeah, like like an example I'm thinking of is if you're walking down the street and you walk, you walk past a guy and you're the kind of person who just like picks a fight. That's very masculine and too far. That's that's like much more than masculine, but masculinity is part of what gives you like testosterone is fueling that interaction. And that's in my opinion like too far. That's that's not positive masculinity. But then there's like the guy who's abusing a girl walking down the street and you go up to him and stop that interaction physically if you have to. That's like positive masculinity. Does that like make sense to you? I understand what you're saying. I just don't necessarily agree with the categorization. I think that someone that walks down the street and wants to pick a fight has some pretty serious traumas. They're a sad person. They're hurt. They're, they're in a wrong way. It's not just because they're a man or because they have testosterone that they're picking fights. They're hurt. Um, that's, that's, the, that's what it is. And then you have another man that goes down and he avenges somebody or protects them. That's awesome. It doesn't mean he's a man. It doesn't mean he's masculine. Uh, you know, Ronda Rousey could do the same dang thing. And that's just what it is. He's got good morals. He's got uh, maybe a little bit more, um, oh, less fearfulness. He's just, a, you know, more confidence to go do that. But the problem is, is characterizing someone picking fights or someone breaking up a fight as masculine is the root issue. So what's your problem with, with it? With the characterization of masculine? Yeah. Yeah, because <clears throat> there's just not there's just not a reason to necessarily state that fighting is a man thing. There's not a there's not a reason to state that chivalry is a man thing. That's a human situation. Feeling hurt and having to pick on someone is a human emotion. Being chivalrous is a human responsibility. It's humanity. And so categorizing it as masculine is what uh, it's the propulsion behind division between men and women. We don't need to say that this is masculine and I'm a man because I do this. That means that women are different, but women can do that. That means that transsexuals are different. Transsexuals can do that. None of those things has anything to do with masculine. And the problem is, is that when people start calling it that, it creates division. So you think we should try and unite over that we can all embody these personality traits and that no matter, because uh, I guess the, 
it's it seems like what you're saying partially is that like a woman can be just as masculine as a man and a man can be just as feminine as a woman well i guess it depends on what you're categorizing as masculine and it doesn't necessarily the categorization is pointless right i i th- i think the the origin of the question mm-hmm. was because these days it seems like there's a lot of um attacks on on gender and men and women yeah and i think there is something to gender roles not everything like I'm not suggesting that they always need to be the way they are, but there is something to guys are stronger, they're bigger. Oh yeah. They play a role. Mm-hmm. Women are more often more artistic, more intelligent, and they like both both genders fill roles that can be uh respected and and played into in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing. Mhm. Um but I think we should move on. What are you willing to risk your life for? Not much. I mean, I, my life is the number one most important thing that I have. My life begets time. My life begets money. My life begets emotional happiness. It's, it's what is everything. And so for me to give my life for something would be the worst thing I could do. Because then I can't help take care of that thing. Then I can't progress and help others. And I would have to be really damn sure that that thing I was giving my life for could do more benefit than I could for the rest of my life. That would be maybe the point in time where I might think about giving my life for something else is if it was going to have a more positive impact than the rest of mine would. I imagine something like that could be a child, which makes me curious if you plan on having children or have, think about it. Yeah, think about it a lot. Would love to have children. Definitely a plan. Need to work within my own self and my own relationship to make sure we get there in the, you know, at the right stage in life. Do you feel like a lot of your, pe- like, do you feel like many of your peers are having children or want children? I think a lot of my peers are having children. It's that time well i mean i'm 34 so a lot of them have already had children and there's still quite a few in alicia's friend group that are having children and we're in the same age bracket and then yeah there are a fair amount that are deciding not to Uh, but i wouldn't say it seems to me that it's that much more common as i get to know a lot of older couples and older people there's a fair amount of them that are dinks and so what do you mean by dinks? They don't Dual have income, no kids. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a fair amount of dinks out there. And it's so it's not necessarily a completely uncommon thing. <laughs> no, yeah. And it, it seems more common in, in our generation than, than I think it is becoming more common, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, is there anything that you care about? Like, is there anything that you'll care about once you're dead? Like, like 100 years from now? Or 200 years from now, is there anything that's like, oh, I really want this to to be preserved or this to be passed on? Yeah, yeah. My 100-year legacy, my 100-year legacy 
is to own over 300,000 acres globally or to have a 501c3 dedicated with over 300,000 acres globally. That's whole purpose is to help people with nature, uh, psychedelic, naturopathic healing, primarily for people with post-traumatic stress and severe drug addiction. So if I was to be remembered through something, that is what I hope to be remembered through. When they read my eulogy, that's going to be the triumph uh, that I would love to succeed in. What draws you to PCS, PTSD or I believe you said drug addiction? Yeah, drug addiction is something that I've experienced through my partner and her family. So it's got some pretty close ties and I understand just the wickedness of it. I've seen it for a good amount of time now and it's super sad. I have a good relationship with psychedelics in regard to psilocybin and I feel personally that psilocybin has a big benefit on drug addiction and the ability to get over it. I think nature is another huge benefit to drug addiction and the ability to go over it. And those type of things still overlap into post-traumatic stress. And oftentimes people think military specifically with post-traumatic stress. And I do think that that's a large lion's share of at least the people that get categorized or they get a name for it. But stress is prevalent everywhere. So there's post-traumatic stress from, from everything. And so it's just people dealing with high, high levels of stress that need a jolt, a reawaking, a completely different environment. What are some of the high stresses that you see in, the peer, in your peers or in the people you interact with? I think it's just, I mean, everyday stresses are stresses, and it's really kind of a tough thing. Because it's, it's like when you talk about trauma, there's not one trauma that's greater than another trauma, right? If, if you got spanked as a kid and that gave you trauma, but your sister got raped, you guys both have trauma. It's not that one is more important than the other. Sure. And so I just don't see, yeah, it's just not one of those things where I think you can necessarily categorically say which is more important. Do you feel like commonly people are good at hiding trauma? Like, do you, like, I've found a lot of times people, at least, like, and maybe they're protecting themselves. There could be a lot of reasons why they don't want to let it out. But as you start to peel back the layers and get to know them better, you realize, wow, this person that I thought was so well, just like, they seem so strong fundamentally. And as I get to know them, I realize, oh, no, they're this super vulnerable super fragile and traumatized person like the rest of us. Do you, do you find that sometimes where you get to know people better and then you're like, whoa, you're human? Personally, I pride myself in being able to see people. And I think that that's something that not a lot of people have the opportunity for or they don't take the opportunity to do so. We can all see people. But I've, I pride myself in it and I don't, necessarily get surprised by traumas. It's not something that would surprise me no matter what it is. I think that those people that if you say are good at hiding their traumas, what that is, is a really solid defense mechanism. It's a really solid schematic for how not to feel pain. And it's, it's really, really valid. It's a good thing to have. It's valuable. It's not something that you should be ashamed of. It's not something that's really an issue, but you need to realize that you have it. And then once you do, 
if you want to get in relation with those traumas, if you don't want to hide them or push them down or bury them or fret about them as much anymore, you, you, you have a relationship with them and you quit using that defense mechanism. You quit using that strategy mm. to, to not feel. And once you allow yourself to feel those traumas, have a relationship with that trauma, then when it comes up, you can see it. And it's not, it's not like when you go ask your girlfriend, hey, babe, you want to go out and do something and, and hang out? She says, no, you know, I, I just want to do my nails. And you immediately think, well, fuck, she just hates me. She rejected. I don't know why I must smell bad or like, you know, our relationship's going everywhere. I just feel, I just feel totally rejected. And she's not rejecting you. She needs to do her nails because she's going to dinner tonight. That's what she's doing. But you have this crazy trauma from in the past when your parents were always at work. They were never home. And they never wanted to hang out and watch TV with you. And it's just this nasty trauma that you have that whenever your girlfriend doesn't want to go hang out with you and watch TV, it comes up. Mm. And you react negatively to it until you learn to have a relationship with it. Mm. And then you don't blame your girlfriend, which is a positive thing. It takes a long <laughs> effing time to figure out, though. Yeah. No, I've, yeah, I, I can say that I've slowly recently been realizing patterns, like emotional patterns that I've developed yeah. for coping. And, and like you said, embracing your emotions, leaning into sadness or anger, or whatever it is, and letting it come out mm -hmm. and not just trying to close the bottle and keep it in there. Um, but you said that you were good at reading people. Mm -hmm. How did you, is there any, like, were you just born good or did you develop, do you think that like there was, you had experiences that forced you to become good at reading people or like, where do you think that came from? It came from a heart in general. I think of sales, I think as a younger kid, I was also around adults a lot more. So there may have been a little bit more. I don't know if you could call it emotional intelligence or just understanding that I might have had a leg up on when I was a kid. I think there's a fair amount of us that have been around adults when we were younger, though, too, especially our generation, the latchkey kind of kids in that sense. So that helps. Sales has been a big part of my life since I was in my early 20s. I've always been a bartender. I've seen a lot of people in and out. And so you kind of got to learn how to work with them so you can work with them as little as possible when you're doing stuff. And I think probably the biggest change in my ability to read and pick up is just recently happened where I can take myself out of it, where I can take my emotion out of it. And when you look at me, I don't think, oh, man, Sean, what are you thinking about me? Am I doing this podcast wrong? Am I messing up with this mic and they can't really hear me? I'm not really concerned about all of my weird things right now. I'm just looking at you and seeing, man got some sinking eyes right now. I wonder if you're a little bit tired. You know, you got something going on under your eye cheek. Your hair looks beautiful. You've been doing some really good time with that. It looks awesome. So you can just kind of start to look at people. And if you just take all the concerns you have about yourself out of it, you get to see them a lot better. So as opposed to focusing on yourself, you focus on whatever the subject is that you're trying to interact with. Yeah. Mm, it's as simple as that, huh? Full attention. <laughs> is um, I've been learning a little bit about sales lately and I am the 
last. I'm not a salesman. Mm-hmm. I've always been like, I've always thought selling was like, like you had to be a magician to sell because <laughs> yeah. I just can't do it. But I've been learning that there's kind of a new wave in sales where it's much less like the used car salesman where it's just shoving it down your throat. And it's kind of, um, I don't know if reverse psychology is the right word, but you're you're letting the buyer convince themselves that they want what you whatever you're offering. Is that does that make any sense to you at all, or do you have like a school of thought on on your salesman approach? So there's obviously way there's a bunch of different fields of sales. If you're selling shoes versus selling loans, cars, real estate, bonds, security, it doesn't matter. There's a bunch of different kinds of sales and the the sales method that I prescribe to came from a book called The Go-Giver. It's a really awesome, relatively short read. And it's all about value-based selling, adding value. Is everything I'm doing, it's actually kind of funny because you can, I'm part of Rotary as well, and there's a four-way test. It's the four-way test of the things we think, say, and do. First, is it the truth? Second, is it fair to all concerned? Third, will it build goodwill and better friendships? And fourth, will it be beneficial to all concerned? And so if you can run your sales strategy by those four checkpoints and they pass, you're in the right shape. But it's value-add sales. I don't go and try and tell someone what house they need. I tell them the houses, I pull out what they want out of the houses and then show them houses within their needs. That extrapolation is very difficult though. And it takes pointed, correct questions and really good ears. The questions to learn what they need. Mm-hmm. And then you know your supply. You mm-hmm. know what you have. Mm-hmm. But the hard part is figuring out what they need. Is right. that accurate? Yeah, most people don't really know what they need. Mm. In, in a good majority of different kinds of sales. It happens all the time when someone comes in and they want a pair of white Nikes, but after they put them on, they're like, man, this is going to scuff up real quick. What I really wanted was some nice black Adidas, but I kept seeing this white Nike advertisement. And so mm-hmm. the salesman, if they're watching correctly, or if they're helping, they can bring that person to the black Nikes, even though, I'm mean, sorry, the black Adidas, even though the white Nikes, they're going to make more money on because they're more expensive. That's a value add salesman not looking to make the highest commission, looking to make the best opportunities for the customer. Mm. And it's super important. The reason why that's so important is because if you're a value-add salesman, if you're not pushy, then you get more referrals and you get more organic business. And that's, that's, what's, that's what it's really all about. Do you find word of mouth is one of your best marketing platforms? Just- it's taken a long time to get there, but it's definitely our primary source of clientele right now it's but it's taken six seven years so another shift of gears mm-hmm. what in your mind is the most threatening like existential problem to either your life or humanity the world or, or this business or like what's kind of the biggest glooming problem in your life I think to be quite literal, probably power and water or world concerns. But if I was going to dive a little bit deeper into something that would be more juicy for the conversation and I think equally a large concern, it's people's emotional bandwidth and division and offense. The ability for people to get offended 
the amount of division that it causes in our country primarily. I imagine it's throughout a good majority of other countries as well. But that's, I think, a very large looming concern to an extent. I'm really a big proponent of stateship. I wouldn't really be all that concerned if all the states went into their separate little opportunities. I think that's great. Um, but I guess that's it. Just the division in people and the absolute inability to communicate and the insane amount of offensiveness that I guess some people feel. Yeah. Do you, do you see that in your day-to-day life or is it more of a distant thing that you see in the news and in politics and just in like our government and the way things operate on a higher level? Oh gosh, I get offended every day and I have to try and I have to try and work with that emotion that comes up when I get offended. I got to figure out what is that that I'm actually feeling. It's not that person and I got to relate with it and I got to move forward and understand that person's probably not trying to offend me. I'm just being a little bitch. Mm. So that happens to me every day. And I don't think that there is anything you can do besides understand where your emotion is with that offense. And that's what everyone needs to do when they, you know, when someone sees a Trump sticker on the back of someone's truck, they can't get frustrated because of all their beliefs about Trump. That person is just doing their thing and they have their own beliefs and um, they don't need to be grumpy about it. Just like, you know, when some Christian walks up and sees a man with, you know, tits and long hair and makeup on, they really shouldn't get that offended. That person's just doing their own dang thing. It's not really that big of a deal. Um, but you got to feel like, why is it? Why does that hurt you? Is it, is it because you've been indoctrinated with the fact that this is wrong and you see this person sinning and you're actually so sorrowful for them that they're going to go to hell that you just can't figure out how to talk to them sensibly. So you yell and you just, because you're sad, maybe that's what it is. Who really knows? But as soon as you see someone yelling at you, you might take the wrong offense to it, but it could just be really sad because you're going to go to hell. So are you just really good at at handling your frustration when you get offended? Because you seem like the kind of person that's really good at disagreeing without, uh, w- while being diplomatic and di- diving into that disagreement as opposed to like blowing up, getting mad, and running away from it. Mm-hmm. Would you, like do you think is that? But you said that you get offended every day and it's like a hard thing. You think you've just gotten good at it. You know you're offended, but then you say, you know what? I don't need to get emotional. I don't need to react. I just noticed that I don't appreciate what you just did. I think we get better at it as we go, right? Like when it comes down to political conversations, I don't get... I don't get offended. I'm not, I'm not that big into it. I can, I can go off on those because I don't have a huge, you know, there's not a huge pull to me, but if I I may get offended in the morning when my, you know, when my wife doesn't kiss me goodbye, that may offend me. Those are the type of offenses because I'm like, fuck, you know, that hurt. I wanted to kiss. I feel sad. I'm going to be gone for the whole day. She didn't do that. Just she, she doesn't love me. Right. Those type of offenses, it's typically within familial relational settings that my offenses still lie. Uh, And those are the ones that I'm still working on. Mm. Existential ones, people that aren't within that core, it takes a lot more. And I do think that that's a practice. I do think that that's something that people have to be cognizant of and they get better at with time. Yeah. So do you, are there any tools that you've 
found useful for when you do get offended in that space where it hurts you in the family emotional space like thing do you meditate or do you do you go for a walk or is there any specific tool that you go to when that happens so my best tool is my defenses that's that was that's been my best tool forever my defense strategy and that's to just shut down that's that's typically mine i've i've been very good for a long time of being emotionless not feeling emotion so if something offends me i can just shut it off it's beautiful strategy it's worked really really well for a good majority of my life and now i the strategy is to turn into the pain there's not really any more like defense thing it's it's the whole idea of man i feel offended let's get some more right and see where this is in open because typically if my partner is offending me she's got her own shit going on she's just being short because she didn't have her shake this morning and she's hungry she has three calls to make and she read her book too long and so now she's not going to be able to make those calls before work and she's stressed you know, like it's, I can easily get pissed off about not having a kiss, but it's not, it's not that she didn't want to kiss me. Sure. And the ability to try and take myself out of it and turn to her is the new strategy. And that's really it. Take yourself out of it. Hmm. Just like you were saying earlier, when I forget exactly what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And reading people, mm-hmm. take you stop focusing on. Yeah, you take yourself out of it. Yeah. So think about every time you think your girlfriend or one of your buddies, or your mom's, or your dad is pissed off at you. They're saying something, or you take something wrong. You just, I mean, just turn to them and be like, "Man, maybe I did fuck up. Maybe, you know, maybe I I did forget to put my my dishes away. And you really hate it when the dishes are out because you just cleaned the whole house yesterday." And that dish out means that I don't respect you. And you know what? You're probably right. I contributed to that feeling that you have. I contributed to you feeling disrespected. And I'm sorry. Turn into it. Admit it. It's not everything. There's probably a whole lot of other disrespect that's happened in her life that adds to that. But you know what? You left your plate out and you just triggered it. Mm. Own it. Sure. Um, this is definitely a change of of pace cool (laughs) are you do you follow like well i guess i are you supportive of like nuclear energy and improving the safety and implementation like basically doing research and development on nuclear energy so rotary which i'm a big part of rotary one of their two initiatives they're looking at rotary for the longest time 50 60 70 80 years their initiative has been to eradicate polio worldwide and so bill gates actually just donated 1.2 billion dollars to eradication of polio and uh, rotary will probably match that that's been their initiative but we're getting close to finished with that polio's it was really close. There has been some random stuff that's going on, but we're close to finishing that. When we do finish that, the next thought of what do we want to do is either global clean water or nuclear power as far as our propulsion and initiative. And so though I'm relatively 
ignorant to nuclear power. I've seen a couple of presentations on it through our rotary groups, and I have zero issues with it, especially in the smaller scale that, uh, you know, could have enough power for something like Hood River, but in the event of a situation, it's not going to create a huge catastrophic issue. So I don't know enough about it, but I think it's a great opportunity. I really hate the fact that there's still no way to completely get rid of the waste. That's a bummer. I imagine someone will be smart enough to figure out how to reutilize that somewhere, somehow, or do something. I just, I mean, I'm not a huge proponent of just turning it into glass and burying it in the ground, though. Yeah, that's that's kind of the hard thing. Do you feel like that's most people's distaste? I think most nuclear? people's distaste are it blowing up, it polluting the Columbia, and it never going away. Hmm. I mean, you want to talk about the gorge? It's got, I mean, Hanford was a really nasty thing that's hurt the columbia river one of our mainstays for a long time yeah which is interesting because it's one of those things where it's like you listen to the scientists and they give you numbers they have data but what is it's it's such a such a complicated phenomenon that it's Mm -hmm. really hard for us to really understand like what the what the actual state of like the nuclear radiation in the columbia river is for example like it's Depends on flow, depends on time of year, depends on all sorts of stuff, I'm sure. Groundwater, all the things. Yeah, right. And and then and then the yeah, exactly. How much is actually in the river and then how much it's actually affecting things in the river and, and us. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of the the restriction, the regulation on it, I think is also I, I'm actually not very knowledgeable on it either. The the reason I'm interested in it is because it sounds like it's going to be crucial in the energy transition but it's so distasteful mm-hmm. still that like we we kind of going are going to need a, a societal level shift in our in our acceptance of nuclear energy not because yeah it has downsides but it's kind of like in a lot of ways the least bad option for on a certain scale right like we're going to need it um just like a lot of other things, there's no perfect solution for most anything. Like, no, there's no perfect economic uh, uh, system, right? We just go with the least bad option. Some right. people get screwed. Some people get spades. And mm-hmm. um, so another shift. I didn't. Uh, I thought I lined up my questions a little more fluidly, but hey, we're just bouncing around. <laughs> that sounds good. Um. What is make or break for you in a podcast? Like, I guess that assumes you listen to any amount of podcasts, but I assume you have before. What what really makes a podcast or breaks a podcast for you? So I haven't actually listened. I'm not a big podcaster, which is kind of, well, it's not that surprising. I don't do a lot of that kind of stuff. But I have recently, within the last maybe six months or so, listened to some of Joe Rogan's. And I think... That's probably what everybody's listened to, and that's great. And Joe Rogan was super interesting, and I think it was really awesome. And, you know, I don't follow the fighting thing quite as much or the comic thing quite as much, so not all of his guests are all that tantalizing to me. But one thing I did find out that I didn't appreciate after quite a while is that Joe Rogan continued to say the same things. As much as I believe in his things, I think that they're, I, I really I don't have any qualms with them. It's the, the podcast podcast became the same. 
and that's that's the one thing that I guess I didn't like. And mm. so I can't tell you what I would want out of a podcast. But uh, it's not that. It got it's not stagnant. That. It got stagnant. Yeah. I was kind of oh. surprised that it did. So so I guess we should let's dive more into why you're not a podcast guy mm-hmm. because you're a books guy, right? Yeah, you like books. to read. Yeah. Um podcasts are not in any way in my mind a replacement for books. They're uh-huh. a supplement for when I'm when I'm working on the house or when I'm doing some somewhat mundane task where I have like extra mental processing power to pay attention to a podcast, like driving, for example. Right. That's when I tune into a podcast. What do you not have time or are you just not interested or like what keeps you from listening to more or trying more podcasts? Trauma. It's trauma around my phone. Anything that has to do with me spending more time figuring out, doing, dealing with my phone, I don't want to deal with it. I've dealt with my phone way too much. Um, I don't want to deal with someone calling and interrupting the podcast and me having to deal with figuring out how to go that and restart the podcast. I really don't like more reasons to be on my phone. Mm. And that's it. If there was a podcast on, I listen to the radio every single day. It's because I don't have to touch anything. I get in my truck and it's on. I don't have to connect to a Bluetooth and pick a song and do all these things. I just turn the dial up. And so that's the reason why I don't podcast is because it's not as simple as I would like. Mm. Do you listen to music? Uh, On the radio. But not on Spotify or not on your phone? Mm -mm. Interesting. Yeah. Have you, what do you think has polarized you so heavily? I mean, mm-hmm. I agree. I am always looking for ways to use my phone less, mm-hmm. but you seem much more polarized. And I guess I'm curious if there's a reason. Yeah, it's the trauma that I've had in business because my phone was my lifeline. My phone, like, it's, I'll be doing something and I get va- phantom buzzes. My whole livelihood is around how well I manage my phone. That's it. If I don't pick up a call, if I don't get an email in, if I don't reach texts, I lose money. And so trying to stay away from the phone as much as possible, trying not to have other things that may buzz me, trying not to have other reasons why I want to look at it and maybe open my email and dive into work stuff. I just don't want to I don't want to add more reasons to look into my phone. Mm. Has it has it become like through work you've just been so uh it's it's almost become like a nightmare, like a terror of your your like are you just a workaholic kind of a thing where you just can't stop working and you're trying to stop working and then the goddamn phone rings again and you're <laughs> like I swear. <laughs> Well, that sort of thing. I think for some people, not everybody, but some people, work is one of the most beautiful drugs you can find because everyone applauds you for it. You can find a whole bunch of meaning and self-worth in it, and you can do it depending on your job all the time. You can work 24 hours a day if you can stay up, at least in my industry. So work is a beautiful, beautiful drug. And it's just that I don't, I don't want to be as addicted to it. It's not that it's not that it's some sort of nasty traumatic situation. It's that, I mean, work is 
work is for a long time how I valued myself. And as I've found different ways to value myself, I haven't been as concerned or as much of a workaholic. I've been able to open my mind into other things. And so the phone is like the crack pipe, right? It's there. Yeah. You know, there may not be crack in it, but I certainly don't want to pick it up. Because yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy to go find some crack to put in it. Right? Yeah, sure. So you I don't just, need another reason to touch yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> let's just keep the crack pipe down if I can. I'm curious what about the value. You said you learned to value other things about yourself. What do you value about yourself? And was there a catalyst that brought you to value those things? What I started to value more was time. I started to value time. And with that time, I was able to open up more emotional bandwidth. And that was a cognitive choice. That was a choice that we made between my partner and I, stating that, hey, you know, this work pace is maybe not healthy. Let's, let's see if I can jump in. You can pull back some. And let's give your brain a little bit of space. And through that, we also go to counseling. We've been counseling pre-COVID for three or four years. And that space allowed me to really dive into my counseling and start to click things together and figure them out. And once I had more of that space, I was actually able to feel joy more. And that joy allows me to want to go ride a motorcycle more, want to go raft the river more, want to go mountain bike more, want to go play jits more, want to go do all these type of things. And it's because it wasn't so bogged down with work. Mm. Isn't that, isn't time what it's all about? It really is, yeah. Yeah, I think that there's some people that strive to make a million dollars a year, then two million, and then they want to make five, and then they need to make ten. I think you make what you need to survive, to feel safe, to save some money so you can invest, and then instead of continuing to make more money, see how much more time you can make. Can mm-hmm. you give yourself two months off a year? Can you get six months off a year and still make, you know, three hundred thousand dollars? Can you do that? I've been, I've been brewing an idea in my mind lately that I haven't. It, it has to do. I haven't really verbalized it, so I'm trying to put it together, but it. The basic concept is profit on your time. Mm -hmm. How much time are you putting into this new thing, whether it be a business endeavor, and how much time are you hoping to save if it goes well, as opposed to how much time are you putting in and how much money do you get out? The end goal is time, free time that you can do with what you please. Which requires equity. Time requires equity because equity is the only way you're going to get a return on that investment. I see what you're saying. Yes, sure. In order to have the freedom. You have to have equity in something. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's been our goal is if we want to be financially independent. My partner and I set our goal when we moved here back in 2016 that we wanted to be financially independent in 10 years. And what the thought is with that is that if you could save a million or a million and two dollars, 1.2 million, if you could do that in 10 years, 
you should have no problems being financially independent, so long as you're investing at an 8 to 10% return, which isn't that hard to do. You can, you're not going to do it in the market, maybe, but if you have creative opportunities, you can get an 8 to 10% return. And so what does that mean? Well, we need to figure out how to invest $100,000 a year um, or 120. Okay, well, what does that mean? We need to, it costs us 100 grand to live. So Alicia and I need to figure out how to make $250,000 a year. And once you figure out how to do that, then you're on your way. Problem is, is typically making that type of much money and starting it and figuring it out and trying to do it successfully creates a burnout factor and a trauma factor and it breaks apart our relationships and you lose friends and you fuck things up and it's just nasty because it's such a hard grind. And would I think for me, the place that I normally fall apart is I get too focused on that, the money. I get too focused on I need to make $250,000 in that case so I can invest one hundred fifty, dollars instead of remembering that the end goal is time, mm -hmm. right? Along the way, just remembering that, wait, I'm breaking my back. I'm completely, I'm like, I'm traumatizing myself. Mm -hmm. This is not the goal. I need to pull back a little bit and remember why I'm doing all this. Yeah, to an extent, it depends on your goal. Like you can pull back for sure if you want to be financially independent in 20 years or if you're okay with working until you're 65, but you're only going to work 20 hours a week the whole time. Great. That, sure. That's fine too. Just depends on when you want to be done. And, you what? know, it's, it's really not that hard. It's just a numbers game. If you want to be done in 10 years, you know how much you need to live off. If you only need, if you live off of $50,000 a year, you could be done in five years. Just oh, how it goes. What do you want to do when you're done? Uh, work on this philanthropic project of owning 300,000 acres globally. I do a fair amount of community service through Rotary and Elks and United Way stuff. I will probably, there's just an awesome opportunity to do some really cool tutoring through at the Hood River Middle School and High School through their AVID program that I just learned about, which is amazing. So I might look into doing that soon in the future. Uh, I would really love to find people if I did ever get into the spot where I had that much capital to invest in. I think that would be really fun. Find people to help turn around their businesses and do stuff. I'd also love to do um, different retreats. I've talked about like a, what do you call those? Rite of passage retreats. I think there's a fair amount of them and a fair amount of groups that do rite of passage retreats. But I think those would be a really fun thing to get into. What is? Can you give an example of a rite of passage retreat? So a rite of passage is maybe having a child, maybe the death of a parent, becoming married, turning 18. Uh, mm. All those things can be rites of passage, large shifts in your life, um, changing something. The death of both parents would be a huge rite of passage. Once you have no more parents, it's a big deal. Um, so, or middle age, different things like that. But what a rite of passage retreat is from my understanding, and this is still something that I've not looked into at all, uh, but I'm really curious to get more about <laughs> and look more into. My assume, assumption is you go out there and you basically talk about what it means to let go of what was and embrace what is or is coming. And I think that that's just a, it's... It's not that dang hard, but a lot of people have blocks because they have previous traumas and they have these amazing defense mechanisms and strategies that don't let them do it. Are you kind of, that kind of sounds like 
a way to connect with people, more human connection. I'm really big on that. The whole idea of I'm huge on tribalism. That's one of the whole big ideas behind this 300,000 acres is to create tribes of 40 to 50 people um, that are all in the similar situations, whether it be drug addiction, post-traumatic stress, wherever they're come from. And I think that that's the, I think that that's the best way. I'm a huge fan of multi-generational living, the ability to keep your parents or your kids close do all those type of things. I really like the idea of putting young kids around old kids in neighborhoods and communities so you can learn from them. All of those things are big. On a, so those are, a lot of those things are kind of lifestyle, like, um, I guess they're, they're longer term or just they're, they're, they're slower to make that change, whether like, whether it's multi-generational living or, or whatever it is. I'm curious if there's any, um, shorter term ways that you find connection. Like some people go to the bar and they go socialize at the bar. Is there anything like, you know, that on a weekly time, like, oh, I need to do more of this when you're looking for social connection that's there, or is it hard to find? Social social connection is pretty much what I pigeonholed my life into. It's social connection is never lacking, ever. We have people over at our house all the time for dinner. We're always going, I'm always going and riding with people or, like I said, playing jujitsu is a plethora of social connection. There's There's all sorts of things that I have set myself up to be social. And a lot of that is because it benefits business. It's because sometimes how I get recharged and how I get full or how I used to. And so, yeah, social social connection is not a difficult situation for me, but it's because I intentionally put myself in those places. So you have all the social connection you're looking for. Yeah. And you're interested in sharing that same a level of connection with other people through this like uh, tribal uh, system of tribes. On... I, don't, I don't know if people would do very well with my level of social connection. Most people would not like that, which is totally fair. I have a fairly large amount of it. What my level of social connection is beneficial for is networking. So you can reach out to me and say, hey, Tanner, I need this. Or do you know someone like this? Or, hey, I have this idea. What do you think about this? And I'll be like, oh, you should talk to that person. Or, oh, let me get you over here. Or, oh, I just heard this. You should look this up. The social connection aspect helps me deploy value to anybody and everybody. The more social connections I have, the more value I can add to each and every person. Hmm. As a connector is what we call ourselves. Sure. Hmm. And did you just fall into that to being a connector? It's part of it's part of the job in a sense, right? Real estate, you you have a lot of connections. That's kind of how you make your business. And so yeah, that's part of it. I would say the job pressed it. Right, but I don't think most real estate agents are as social as you. That's fair. Is there something that made you like is there something that gave you that that highly social incentive or or bias? I do it with things that I love. I'm social within my constraints that I want. I'm not going out to bars to be social because I don't really want to do that. I'm not going to clubs in Portland to be social. It's not what my scene is. I don't, you know, I don't have, I don't go to PTA. We don't have kids. So I don't do school stuff necessarily. That's not my social scene, but it's really easy for me to be social when I go take three or four guys out rafting. 
It's really easy for me to be social when we invite, you know, 40 people up for Friendsgiving. It's really easy for me to be social when I go to the gym and, you know, go sweat and roll with three or four or five or 10 dudes. It's really easy to find those social aspects because I enjoy them. And it's no longer me trying to be social. It's me just living. And that's the best situation because it's so genuine. Mm. That is beautiful. Um, I guess we just covered that question. Um, are social boundaries a concept that you are very aware of? No. <laughs> all right <laughs> you can continue on i'm not sure no <laughs> i was trying to think of a way to open it up but i think i'd be i'd be working hard um is it do you ever struggle to be present while you're being highly productive and moving really fast i think that's the only way to be productive just mm. being highly present you can't do multiple things at once. I know a lot of people say that a feminine quality is maybe multitasking, but I think that's bullshit. Mm. There's a great book called The One Thing that's worth the read, and it's just all about focus. So no, um, or yes, I'm not sure. I have to be extremely present to be productive. Seems like that's a common theme for you. You've just let go of all the other, all the the questioning in your mind about what other people think and you're not concerned at all. You're only thinking or considering your own opinion and your own thoughts and what your senses are bringing to your mind. Mm. To an extent, but not exactly what I'm, I'm not taking my own thoughts in and I'm trying to not be subjective either. I'm definitely attempting to be objective. If I take myself, I'm not taking myself out of it. If I listen to you and try and think about what I'm saying, or if I think about what you're meaning, that doesn't work. If, if you give me these questions and I premeditate them, I'm not going to be present because I'll have already planned what I'm going to want to say. And that won't incorporate the feeling that I'm picking up from you or the feeling that I'm feeling at this time after eating 10 Starbursts and a little bit sugar jittery, you know? It's just different. So I think that the whole idea of being present, you have to do it through, through kind of everything. And the premeditation of stuff just takes you out of it. That's the whole idea of a beginner's mind. That's why adults can be taught by kids um, because kids don't have these predetermined notions of how to put a microphone to your face. Um, They get to figure it out on their own and they might figure out a different way. So you say things differently. So as we get older, um, that ability to truly be present really starts to go away because you have so many preconceived notions. Mm. I think it starts to go away in some ways, but it also starts to come in in other ways. Like as we come of age, the not concern, not being so concerned, at least for me, it has been not being so concerned with other people's opinions Mm -hmm. of what I'm doing. That goes away. And I think for most people, as they get older, they start to care less. And I don't think when they get really old, they care anymore. But you're thinking, so what do you think causes is, 
people get older, them to care more about what other people think. Or, or sorry, not what other people think, but causes people to struggle more to be present as they get older. Yeah, because <clears throat> you go on hikes. Mm-hmm. So when you're going on a hike and you're walking down the trail, do you stop and look at every tree? No. No, it's because you know what those trees are. You know that that's a pine tree, and I've seen a pine tree before. I understand that it has these odd scales that are kind of big. If I peel back the bark, it looks and smells like this, that those needles are pointy, that the pine cones are fun to throw. I've seen them open. I've seen them closed. I walk by. I know what a birch tree looks like. I know it's that cool papery stuff. I don't have to pull off anymore and feel it and check things out and do all this. But a child that doesn't know, their eyes are open. They find so much more out of every experience because they don't have preconceived notions or thoughts or ideas of what it is. They have to be completely present because they don't know. The more we know, the less beginner's mind we have. And therefore, you could argue that there could be potentially the ability to be more present to an extent because you're not concerned with other things. So let's say you have a child with ADHD that is constantly learning and trying to find out all these different things, but can't necessarily pay attention to one particular learning thing. If that child had a preconceived notion of everything and understood it all, it might be able to pay better attention because its mind's not popping into what's that and why is that hanging there and how does that necessarily work? Why is that reflecting? Oh my gosh, there's a light up here. Why is that light flickering? I don't know all these things, but as soon as I do, I don't have to worry and I can pay more attention and maybe be more present. So I could argue that side, but I think there's a simple beauty to a true beginner's mind. And I think that it allows a certain kind of presence that we don't have as we get older. I think I hadn't put it into those terms and you're helping me uh, realize this as you speak, but I think I've, I've been for years really interested in trying new things, mm -hmm. just anything that's new. Yeah. And that's kind of been my way of, because I guess it puts you into the beginner's mind. It does. It helps keep your mind flexible yep. and helps you apply that that fresh mind in other aspects of your life because you say you realize some fundamental concept in one discipline and then you apply it to another discipline that you've been doing for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Is that something you do or do you have another way of trying to manifest the beginner's mind in your life? Beginner's mind takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. To put yourself in the position to have a beginner's mind as an adult is hard. It means, you know, being a white belt in jujitsu. It means buying your first dirt bike and trying to figure out how to ride it and then ride it better. It's, it's starting new things or putting yourself into awkward or unknown situations. I have a beginner's mind about my emotional understanding and balance, right? I've just, I've just within the last maybe year or so started to really understand, embrace and, and connect with my emotions. And so I'm a beginner at that in those minds. And it's amazing. It's tough. It's hard. It's painful. It's joyful, all those things, but I'm a beginner in that. And I have to find new things. I, I've, I'm a, I have a beginner's mind about jujitsu um, but I think that there's a lot of ways that people can harness that mind if they practice it. And so 
Mm. Once you're 400 podcasts in, if you're able to can keep that beginner's mind where you're always looking and never necessarily saying, well, this spring goes this way, maybe it goes that, that's how you're going to continue to always improve in what you're already so good at. And with that will probably come some mistakes. It has to. Right? Best learning. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we could find something to disagree on there. <laughs> um, is there a foreign language that that you're most interested in um, other than Spanish? Yeah, what was um, foreign language that I'm most interested in other than Spanish? Probably Latin, just due to the fact that I think it would help my English. And it seems kind of neat with all the root words. It goes back to some historical times that I can appreciate. I think as I get older, I appreciate history more. And I think Latin has a little bit more roots in that. Are you yeah. are you pretty keen on like uh, Roman times or like pre-Roman or like are those? Is that part of it? Like when Latin was very prevalent? I'm... Still learning. I'm not necessarily sure when Latin was prevalent necessarily, but I'm reading a book right now called Persian Fire that's really awesome. It's basically about the rise of the Persians, which includes the Battle of 300 that everyone knows, the Spartans and all that deal. But it's about the book kind of goes through from about 550 or 600 BC up until 450. And it's just, it goes through, I think, three Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes. And right now I'm getting towards the end of the book. They just got done destroying the Spartans at Thermopylae. They're working on the Athenians. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but that's pretty neat. And so that is maybe some more of the drive. I've read a really cool book on the Vikings, which was neat. They're definitely, they were later in history. I think that was the 800 AD to 13 or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but it's the reason why I'm drawn to it isn't necessarily because of Latin. I'm not drawn to Latin. I am probably drawn to Latin because of the history books, but I think history is the, many people have said, but I think it's just the best way to understand why we do what we do as humans, to understand why government does what government does, why countries do what countries do. It's just a really good way to learn. Yeah, it's it's so easy to feel like today we're so... We've advanced. We've hacked our way out right. of evolution or something, or out of humanity. Yeah. But <laughs> but you got Ukraine and Russia. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, this stuff's been happening forever. It it just happened. I mean, it happens in um, you know Africa all the time. It's it's not anything necessarily new. But I guess when maybe some second, third world countries start playing, or at least big nuclear power, then um, that probably changes the dynamic some versus the crazy shit that just goes on and you know, Somalia and Uganda and Kenya and stuff all the time, all the crazy killings and executions and mass murders and genocide and all that stuff. So do you think there's a <clears throat> practical, do you think you'll actually learn Latin? Are you that motivated or is it kind of a distant thing where you're just like, if I was going to learn a language, it would maybe be Latin. Very distant. I would definitely learn Spanish first, just out of the practicality. Yeah, it's hard not to. Yeah. And that's why I excluded Spanish. For sure, that's totally. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything that you want to improve in your reading habits? Just more of it. I, I mean, anytime I can add some more in, that'd be great. I would actually, I mean, to improve, I guess I would like to have a dictionary. Uh, 
by me, I think that would be a pretty huge improvement. Once again, I don't like to use not, my phone. I was going to say, yeah. not a phone dictionary. Not a phone dictionary. <laughs> Folks, <laughs> no. Please don't suggest that. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be on my phone. I don't read on my phone. <laughs> Do you take notes when you read? No, that would be another great improvement. It's But is that category. one you actually want to implement? Because I don't take notes when I read, and I don't think I want to, mm-hmm. at least... On every, I, I should, to your point, I should probably try it sometimes to get myself in the beginner's sure. mind, but it's not, it, yeah, I, I think it's a, for a specific, for specific books that are more like textbooks. Yes, but mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I don't like the idea of taking notes and so maybe I should get over it. I don't take notes either. I think that there's, the only things that I get out of books that I would do, they have really awesome things called book darts and if for some reason there's something special on that book, I guess you could dart it. I really like to quotes. I'm a huge fan of quotes. So if I find good books in quotes, if I was doing better, I would underline them and book dart them. That would be cool. But the dictionary part would be the biggest because there's words that I don't catch sometimes or don't understand or don't know. And that's that would really be the best way to continue to develop my mind. So what is book dart? Book dart's just a little metal thing that fits on the page. It's like a little brass sliver. It's a little dart, so you can just slip it on there. And then it's, I mean, it doesn't place holder. at all. Placeholder, pretty much. Gotcha. So you can flip through the book all normal. It's just a tiny little sliver of brass that gotcha. slides on there. And then it points, so like if there's a specific line, you can point it right at that. Do you use those? Uh, Leash has used those a lot in the past. I haven't. I have not got into it. Reading was a really large struggle for me in the beginning, and so I didn't put any sort of anything on it like I had to force myself to read 10 pages a day that's how I started yeah and so no I I haven't got into it yet I before I do that I would probably do the dictionary because oftentimes I give my books away or let people borrow them and so I'm uh, noodling in them like that's probably not going to benefit me because I probably won't go back what was so hard about reading when you first started probably my probably just my education level around it Right. Like, you know, I, like, did you ever hear hooked on phonics? No, I was in that whole age bracket. I don't know what was going on within schools or whatever, but I didn't learn phonetically in regard to how to read and write. And so my spelling is really bad and my reading for a fair amount of time has been pretty bad. I also just, I'm not a sit and slow down type of person. Reading isn't, has never been necessarily that enticing that I've thought in the past. I've never found anything that I've been interested in. I don't read fiction. So I'm I'm not reading for pleasure necessarily still. Are you a a Kindle digital book kind of a guy or are you a hard copy? Hard copy only. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. That's (laughs) the only way to go. (laughs) I love the smell. I love Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I love the I love being incentivized by seeing the title seeing the cover seeing mm-hmm. a different book and it's like when it's just a digital like to be fair i've never tried reading off a of kindle sure i don't eat my thing yeah if someone passes me a kindle i'll try it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um is there any kind of art that you're spoken to by like music or painting or dance anything in the arts realm that intrigues you yeah i i whether, art. whether it's creating art or sure. like enjoying it. Never necessarily been creative, but Alicia and I did just spend, I think our first good chunk of money on some art when we went down to Costa Rica. I feel that there's obviously, like you said, way different types of art, but 
now that we've had a little bit of money to spend money on things that we actually find are beautiful, um, I'm a bit more of an abstract style. Uh, that's my preferred style when it comes down to paintings. And I enjoy wood sculptures and such like that. Um, kind of home decoration type stuff. Those type of things, I guess you could say. Yeah, home decoration. I enjoy the uh, feminine body, you know, like painting sculptures of women in those type of senses. So that's all beautiful. I think that that's really cool to get into. I really enjoy swing dancing, if you want to call that a type of art, but that's just more of a hobby that I enjoy. I don't, I don't necessarily put together a performance that I would make it, I would call it an art, but... Sure. Do you, where do you swing dance? Anywhere where the music's playing <laughs> and I got a gal to throw around. It doesn't matter, <laughs> but it's not something I do on a regular basis. You know, yeah. you go to weddings or, you know, someone that has the right music and there's enough women. Sure. And are you formally trained or is it just a letter rip you learned on the dance floor? I can swing dance pretty well, I would say, but not formally trained. It's definitely what you call like a country style swing the steps aren't like lindy hop they're not east coast they're not west coast but they do have some formality to them and so i just kind of get after it and don't you know don't necessarily look too much into it but have a lot of fun doing it is there any music that speaks to you modern music or i guess if not modern music is there any music that speaks to you that's meaningful that that's really inspiring to you I'm not necessarily, once again, like I'm a radio person, you know, I don't, I don't strive for any particular kind of music. I don't have some sort of huge calling. I don't know band names really that well. I could maybe uh, have a, a couple of, I could pop off, but if I'm going to listen to music, if I'm going to play something on my little Pandora or whatnot, it's typically going to be uh, a bluegrass style, like Trampled by Turtles or Devil Makes Three or something like that, Abbott Brothers. I also really like some of the older school blues, like, um, anyways, older school blues, Muddy Waters, that's the guy that I always like to listen to, he's that channel, he's super great, and then on the radio, it's always classic rock, mm. it's just the station that's around here that I dig. Cool. So is there any advice that you would give to someone who's becoming a realtor or moving to Hood River, or done anything that you've done, getting into dirt biking or whatever it may be? I'd have to I'd have to do a little listening first. See what kind of uh, advice is best. All right. Um cool. Well, I think that that wraps it up. Are there any questions that uh that you want to ask me since since I just nailed you for an hour? <laughs> what's your what's your overall plan with the podcast? Where do you hope to be? I really it's all about learning. Mm -hmm. I I want to learn about the world and I'm really this is like what I the kind of conversation that I like to have on a day-to-day -day basis. Most people get a little burnt out and they're not ready for this rigorous conversation. So really it's an outlet for me. It's kind of like my own art. It's a it's it's a space that I can dive in and learn about the world. And I really want to understand what problems need to be solved so that I can make products that solve those problems. So do you foresee yourself being able to create a product that solves the tension for lack of better words between Democrats and Republicans. I think this podcast could be part of that. Cause 
like this podcast could be part of the solution for that because I definitely I'm less interested in the left right divide as I am the authoritarian spectrum. Um, and I think that's kind of a new wave that is becoming more and more relevant. So I think to answer your question, yes. Um, I, and I think the reason that I'm inspired about learning about the problem is I feel like, like in my industry and in, in Hood River, there's so many really, really capable people, but they can't get on the same page about what problem to solve and how to do it and how to work together. So you have people competing with each other that are both that are working on two of the same projects, but person A might be really good at one of the projects and person B might be really good at the other project. But since they're both working on both of the projects, now they're competing and taking away from each other. And part of the problem is they don't actually know what problem they're trying to solve. So that's why I'm really motivated to learn about the problems to solve because I see so I think I have a lot of capacity to solve problems and I know a lot of people that have capacity to solve problems but when I say what problem do I want to solve that question's way harder why do you want to solve people's problems because I'm an engineer that's that's in that's like you're a connector mm-hmm. I'm a solver mm-hmm. I love I get such a high out of helping someone, out of someone coming to me and saying, I have this problem, mm-hmm. and me saying, I have this solution. I, that's like, it's in my DNA or something, or in my character. That makes sense. It's a, kind of like a love language for you, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So is there any place that people can find you? Find me? You can find me on the White Salmon River quite often. You can find me up in the Gifford on a motorcycle. I'm at many trials events around... The Pacific Northwest. Need to get in the jiu-jitsu gym a little bit more, but you could totally find me there. And then if you just type in my name, Tanner Hall, I should be all over online because that's what we pay a lot of money for. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Tanner. I really appreciate your time. Heck yeah. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it.